days of 2020, but we have come now to the final words in Matthew's gospel. We have been marching through this gospel for the last couple of years, chapter by chapter, one all the way now to 28. And we've come to these final five verses, the so-called Great uh, Commission. And as I prayed, uh, these are, for many of us, very familiar words. And so we need and pray that the Holy Spirit would cause these words to be new to us, that they would wash over us afresh and be born in us uh, anew. It's no coincidence that not only in Matthew's gospel, but in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the final words that the gospel writers give focus to and fix the eyes and the ears of the hearers upon is not the cross and the resurrection, but what the cross and resurrection motivate and move the people to do and the kinds of people they are to be. Matthew ends with Jesus' words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Those final verses. Mark's gospel, Mark 16, the last chapter of Mark, after the resurrection of Christ, there Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In the final chapter of Luke, Luke 24, verse 46, Jesus says, It's written, Christ should suffer, be raised on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Even the last chapter of John's gospel, after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus appears to Peter. Peter, who had denied the Lord three times prior to the cross, And then after the cross and resurrection, Jesus approaches Peter, reinstates him, encourages him, forgives him, and then calls him to do what? Go and feed my sheep, serve my people, advance the kingdom of of God. Reading any of the gospel accounts should leave one not only recognizing who Jesus is, that he is Lord of all, but convinced, compelled to join the mission that Christ has set forth. That's what he's calling us to. So let's listen to these words, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's two images that came to my mind in hearing and considering these words. The first image is that of a runner. You may have heard it said that the Christian faith and certainly the Christian mission is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Now, if you think about a marathon or a 10K, those are individual events. But the mission uh, and the Christian faith is not an individual event. It is a corporate reality, something that we are called to do together. But I would also suggest it's much longer than a marathon, Now, you might be thinking, I have never run a marathon. How am I going to run further than a marathon? 
Well, this is a race that cannot be completed by one person or one church or even one generation. I would suggest to you that the mission of Christ is a long-distance relay. And it's beginning here in many ways as a fulfillment of Old Testament promises in the days of the apostles. But the apostles are going to take the baton of the gospel and they are going to pass it on to the next generation and the next generation. And now that baton has been passed to us in our generation. And our calling is not so much to complete the mission, but to be faithful in serving the mission and serving him who does and will complete it. That what would be said of David by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 would be said of us. When Paul said, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. It is not our call to complete it. It is our call to serve faithfully the one who will complete it. That's the first image. The second image that came to my mind was of a sign. It was a sign I saw a number of years ago as I visited a church of one of my pastor friends. And while driving out of the parking lot, probably the leadership had put up the sign so that as Christians departed from the church property, they read these words on a sign. You are now entering the mission field. I thought, well, that's interesting. And in many ways, that's true. When we depart outside these four walls and away from the church property, we are entering the mission field of God. But I will tell you, I was tempted to turn the sign around or to write the same words on the other side. Because while it is true, when we depart from here, we're entering the mission field of God, this too is the mission field of God. It is here that God is at work to save souls, to sanctify saints, to teach, uh, encourage, and strengthen the body of Christ. In fact, I would say that the mission of our Lord begins and ends with the assembled people of God. Because missions is not the ultimate goal. The saving of souls is not the ultimate goal. Worship is the ultimate goal, isn't it? It's the glory of God that is the end. And the glory of God is not only the end of all things, his worship and glory is the fuel for the mission. The extent to which we have passion for the glory of God will be proximate to the kind of passion we have and urgency we feel for the mission beyond these walls. Even in the text in verse 16 and 17, it is Galilee, it is the place where Jesus directed the disciples, where they assemble together and to him, where they worship him, we're told, that becomes the motivation and the fuel for the mission ahead. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, put it this way, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. 
And not only is worship the goal of missions, but the mission of the church is grounded in the very nature and character of the God that we worship. He is a missional or mission-centered God. So the Great Commission is very much set in the broader context of what we might call the missio dei or the mission of God. It goes back to the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That through Abraham and through his offspring, that is ultimately Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Our God is a God on mission. He's on the move. Even from the very beginning in the opening verses and chapter of the creation story, what was his command to Adam and Eve? To multiply the image of God and have dominion over all the earth. To spread the image character, and glory of God to the ends of the earth. Yet how will this mission succeed? Upon what foundation will we stand to have confidence in carrying out the words of our Lord? I think it is very easy and quite natural to read this great commission in a very man-centered way. Is not the mission centered on the winning of men and women's souls by the efforts of men and women in the church? Well, there's some truth in that. But we ought to see and feel the weight of how Christ-centered these five verses are. It is saturated with the presence of the Lord Jesus. Each and every verse. Verse 16, it is to Galilee, the place that Jesus directed them that the disciples go. In verse 17, when they see Jesus, they worship him. In verse 18, it is by his authority that they are commissioned. And in verse 19 and 20, he calls them to baptize people in his name, teach them to observe everything that he has commanded, and he promises that he will be with them always. So while the mission is about making and building disciples, it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, and Matthew wants us to see that. Another way that Matthew gets at this is by the repeated all statements in these verses. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, make disciples of all the nations. Observe all the things that I have commanded. Behold, I am with you always. These are words to encourage us. This is a grand and glorious mission. Sometimes we feel weak or ill-equipped, fearful of bearing witness, unqualified to build up others or to teach or whatever it may be. But Matthew is wanting to drive home here at the end that we are in good hands. The mission is in good hands. Capable hands. The hands of the Lord Jesus. What's at the heart of this mission? Verse 17 and 18, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Indeed, at the heart of the mission is disciple making. Making disciples. This term that Matthew uses is significant. A disciple is a student. But it's more than a student, it's a follower. Very important for us to remember as Christians, we're not first leaders, we're followers. 
We're always to be followers of Christ. That's what a disciple is. Someone who's sitting under the teaching of a master or rabbi. And not only to learn from them, but to imitate their character. And that's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Perhaps the closest picture or concept that we have today is that of an apprentice. Someone who's learning a trade. But this trade is not merely learning a skill. It's about being conformed to another person. The person and the character and the teachings of Christ. So significant in what shapes our identity as Christians. Whether you're a homemaker or a school teacher or a student or an engineer or a professor, a pastor, an electrician, a farmer, a salesman, a secretary... Your core identity is that of a disciple. And I think there's a caution here for us. We live in a society that places tremendous value on the fulfillment of our own personal ambitions. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. And Jesus' words, I think, warn against allowing those, I'll call them lesser missions in our lives, lesser ambitions. They can begin to overshadow His mission, which is to form you and me as disciples and to use us, whatever our lesser callings might be, to make and mature other disciples. Notice the radical shift here at the end of Matthew that takes place. It was back in chapter 4, verse 19, that Jesus began calling these disciples. And what did he say to them? Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They knew from the outset that their calling was to be centered on the catching or fishing of men and women. But there's a shift. For nearly three years, full-time, these apostles have been with Jesus, following him, learning from him, witnessing his authoritative teaching, his miraculous and mighty works. They've been, in many ways, on the receiving end of his ministry. But now, there's a shift. They are to be on the giving end. He's going to be departing, sending his spirit to empower them. They're to pour out, to serve, to baptize, to teach, to encourage others. Now, it's true, the apostles, as well as you and I, continue to be on the receiving end of the Lord's ministry. He is in the heavens at the right hand of God. He has sent his spirit. He continues to forgive to save, to sanctify. He intercedes for us. But Christians are also called to be on the giving end. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And again, we live in a society, we live in a culture with a very strong consumer mentality. And that mentality can creep right into our hearts and into the life of the body of Christ. Consumer, consumer, what's in it for me? C.S. Lewis warned about this in his Screwtape Letters, where people can become, he said, connoisseurs of churches. He said that's the next best thing the devil can do from apart from removing a person from the church altogether is to make them connoisseurs of churches. 
I like this. I don't like that. I like this music. I don't like that music. I like this preacher. I like this liturgy. I like this fellowship. And then we become these consumers. Jesus' words and message is the opposite. If you would follow me, you must deny yourself. You must come to the end of yourself and pick up that cross and then follow me. In thinking about the greater shape of this mission, I want us to see a few aspects here, a few different uh, emphases. Four, namely, we might say these are the four legs of, uh, of the chair or of the mission that gives its uh, balance or stability. The first is an upward emphasis here in the mission. What the disciples do in verses 16 and 17 when they travel to Galilee and see Jesus is at the heart of the mission. They saw him and they worshipped him. Disciple making is about bringing people into reconciliation and fellowship of this God to worship him, to give him glory. The second leg of the chair or uh, emphasis is an outward emphasis in this mission. He says, Jesus, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, peoples, people groups. Jesus' vision is global. It was a global vision that the Lord had given to Adam and Eve when he said to them, multiply and have dominion over all the earth. It was a global mission and vision he gave to Abraham and to Israel, calling them to make known the glory of this God. We heard it read in Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let all the peoples praise you. This was the call upon Abraham and the call upon Israel to make known this God among the nations. And here, with the 11 gathered to Jesus, this global vision is going to begin to be fulfilled. Make disciples of all nations. Bring the gospel to the lost. Convert the Gentile nations. Surely the 11 here knew this mission and vision was well beyond their own capacity. They didn't even have their full number with them. One of their own had betrayed the Lord. We read that number 11. Maybe another way of thinking they're, they're limping along. They don't have their full number. And even when they go to meet the Lord, worship is mixed with doubt. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That may be faith mixed with doubt among the eleven, or it may be doubt among other disciples or other people. But it's a great reminder that there's going to be challenges for disciples. Setbacks, trials, and doubts, and pains along the way. But I want us to see Jesus is teaching a way of life. Oftentimes when we hear those words, go therefore and make disciples, there is an emphasis made in the word go. But in the structure of the sentence, the emphasis is more on making disciples than on going. It could be read this way. As you go, as you live your life, be about making disciples. So the mission is less something that you go and do, it is much more a lifestyle that we are to live. And that needs to be captured and recaptured, a lifestyle. 
so that disciple-making and gospel proclamation is manifest in every facet of our lives. We should be thinking about disciple-making in the life of our marriage, in, in the raising of children, in how I live out my, my work among my co-workers and colleagues. It's a calling not only for a select few, but for the whole of the church. So there's an upward emphasis, there's an outward emphasis. Third is an inward emphasis in the mission. He says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism. It's a sign marking a person of being engrafted and numbered among the covenant community. It's a picture of a person coming into the family of God. Now, if you were organizing an outreach, evangelistic work or campaign, I wonder how high on the priority it would be to include baptism as a part of that. But perhaps baptism is not merely an initiation ceremony, but initiation power. Joining people to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One person put it this way, Disciples become the beneficiaries and children of a new father, new siblings of the Son, and fresh companions of the Spirit. And thus, by baptism, believers come into the possession of the great God. Baptized believers come under new management, transferred to a new company. This is that aspect in which people get uh, situated and placed in the local church with a firm footing incorporated, engrafted. So there's an upward emphasis, outward, inward, and finally a downward emphasis in continued growth and sanctification. This is the lifelong journey of sanctification as believers in Christ. So Jesus says, make disciples, baptizing them, and then in verse 20, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. This is perhaps one of the great misconceptions about the Great Commission. That it's primarily about reaching the lost. But in fact, there is a tremendous weight placed upon teaching and doctrine and understanding. And not only teaching, but observation of these things. The application of these things to all of life. Jesus' mission is comprehensive. And it is greater than any one person or any one local church could accomplish. Its outcome is beyond your control or my control. Now, this date may be familiar, July 20th, 1969. Now, this was the day Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first two people to land on the moon. And then just hours later, Armstrong would be the first to step on to the moon. But it was a fulfillment of a mission that uh, President JFK had announced as a goal years prior. Now, these names, Armstrong, JFK, Aldrin, most of us probably are familiar with. But NASA estimated that at the height of the Apollo program, there were nearly 400,000 people working on this single mission. That's a lot of people on one project. Engineers, scientists, mathematicians, 
uh, from caterers to astronauts. It was a massive effort. And yet, I bet all of us here together in this room would struggle to name even 10 to 20 of those 400,000 who served to accomplish the mission. There are few called to be an Armstrong or an Aldrin. Most of us are general, common believers, and yet God uses all of us as parts of the body to carry out this grand mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are not called to control the outcome of the mission. We're called to faithfully serve and being used for the mission. And there's only one head to the mission. There's only one head to the body of Christ. And that is the Lord Jesus. The rest are parts of the body. I want to encourage us with a couple of applications. First, I want to encourage us to consider hospitality as a way to advance the mission Jesus has given to us. To be opening our homes, preparing a meal, inviting a neighbor or a fellow believer into your home, into your life, together for coffee. In doing so, you're creating an environment in which you're opening your life and therefore showing forth the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ, his work in and through us. It is often relationship that becomes the environment for the Lord to advance his purposes and mission. Second, I would encourage you to commit yourself to a discipleship group or a small group of sorts that you can continue to be encouraged, strengthened, to continue growing in the Lord Jesus. In all of this, our Lord gives us this great promise in the closing words of, of Matthew. I'm with you always to the end of the age. I. I think that word is communicating to us, do not look to your own resources. Jesus is saying, I am your major resource. And I am with you. We just have celebrated Christmas Emmanuel, God with us. And here Jesus is saying, I am with you always. Always can mean all the days. It can even mean the whole of every day. I'm with you always to the end of the age. The commands of the Great Commission, move out, make disciples, baptize, teach, is a grand mission, but it's sandwiched and brought to fruition by two great assurances from Christ. First, he has all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That should fill us with tremendous confidence. And on the other end, he is with us all the days to the end of the age. The promise of his presence. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, equip, strengthen us. We pray that you would align our heart with that of your words and your mission. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of endurance that perhaps we have not known before. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a bright countenance that indeed you have called us to be your own and called us into this glorious mission. 
to know you and to make known your goodness and saving mercies in Christ. So we look to you, Lord, um, as our foundation and as our uh, sufficient resource to carry out what you've called us to do. We pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence and boldness, that you would give us patience and wisdom, Lord, that you would give us faith, faithfulness in serving you. All for the glory um, and the praise of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.